I'm by training both a classicist and a theologian. And classicists normally deal with literature that is typically before the rise of Christianity. And theologians are not really interested in poetry because they don't feel that it uh, is a suitable source for the theological systematic thinking they are interested in. And so early Christian poetry fell a bit between two stools and it was uh, perceived as second, second rate, decadent and completely unoriginal. And I felt I wanted to investigate whether that was really true. I mean, we are very much living in an age where we are used to thinking of Christianity as a finished product, as an established uh, institution in our society, whatever problems uh, it may have. Uh, but from a historical point of view, it has to be said that Christianity didn't fall from heaven. It was not the finished product, um, but it uh, rose in an originally hostile environment where many religions were already established and many institutions had very sophisticated ways of conveying their own ideological and political message. And when Christianity m was able to grow more and more over the centuries, it became more and more pressing uh, that this message was also communicated to the cultural elite, that the cultural elite found that an acceptable uh, religion. And that took several centuries to develop and the final force that wanted to stop this was an emperor in the second half of the fourth century called Julian the Apostate. Of course he was called the Apostate because the Christians didn't like him and he didn't like Christianity and he forbade um, teachers that had the Christian faith to teach um, pagan material because he said, well, you don't believe what it says in this material, so why should you teach it? And that brought this conflict to the fore, you know, that there were Christians that were highly educated, there were highly educated people interested in Christianity, and that there was no way of negotiating this. Initially, um, Christianity came in as a cultural force that saw itself as an anti-establishment culture. Uh, they were not pleased with what they saw in society. They believed that there was superstition, there was uh, uh, injustice, social injustice, uh, and there was not enough um, uh, true faith in the one true God. So when they started experimenting with poetic forms, they initially thought, we cannot really accept what the pagans did, like poets like Homer and Virgil, who were the top players in pagan culture, and tried to work in a sort of anti-establishment mode by using unclassical language, unclassical uh, style and unclassical meter. But that experiment was not very successful, interestingly. So, But another uh, mode of doing it was much more successful i.e. you built on established strength and then gently transform it for your own purposes. So they took the existing um, cultural icons like Virgil and Homer and filled them as it were with Christian content uh, and thereby uh, that proved to be a big success. It is something we cannot only observe in poetic forms, um, but also, for instance, when it comes to the establishment of new places of worship. Gregory the Great, for instance, advises when 
Augustine of Canterbury uh, came to Britain to Christianize uh, the inhabitants. He said, don't destroy their original places of worship, but take them, sprinkle a bit of holy water over them, and then turn them into temples that worship the true Christian God. And then the hardened English minds will not find it so hard to, to, to adapt to that new faith. And that's a very similar process to what happened in Christian, early Christian poetry as well. What I would like to emphasize right from the start is that what makes it so fascinating is that early Christianity proves to be a very diverse uh, and um, multi-pluralistic uh, field of experimentation. Sometimes, especially contemporary Christians, sort of say something like, oh, early Christianity, there the world was still okay, and they all thought the same, and they all agreed about everything, and that is certainly not the case. There were uh, many different ways in which one could make uh, the past speak for Christian purposes, and sometimes these purposes were also uh, formulated in a different way. And this goes over several centuries, also there was never really a phase when the whole of Christianity agreed on anything. That's the good news. And I would like to use two examples from the 6th century um, that are still um, important. The first one is Cassiodorus, uh, a 6th century intellectual from Italy, who initially had a career as an administrator and then he decided now he wanted to have a break and uh, dedicate himself to uh, learning. And he had the ambition to develop a educational curriculum, if you like, uh, that combined the standard secular artes liberales, i.e. what a educated pagan would learn, like grammar, rhetoric, astronomy, music, etc. He found that perfectly acceptable, also for a Christian. But he added to that a second um, Christian canon of knowledge one should acquire. Of course, first of all, the Bible, but then also he established a canon of uh, Christian intellectuals like Augustine, Jerome and others an educated Christian should know about. And his idea was that, of course, whatever you learned in the so-called artes liberales should be serving a good Christian life. So one would, could call that a model of um, um, complementation and subordination, if you, if you like, because the um, curiosity or secular learning did not have a purpose in its own right. And then there is another um, um, example from exactly the same period of time, a poet called Venantius Fortunatus, who is often called the last uh, poet of antiquity and the first poet of um, medieval times. You could also call him the first European uh, poet because he traveled from Italy, where he originally came from, to, to France. Uh, and was a major player uh, uh, in, at the Merovingian court. And he was the first poet known to us who developed a canon of um, valuable Christian poets um, without mentioning any cultural icons from the past. So he, instead of, as it were, adding to a pagan canon, replaced it and said Christianity has now come that far that we can just have our own uh, canon of poetry um, because we have now become uh, culturally and intellectually fully established. And that's in a way a new departure. The problem with poetry, and I think we still even um, 
nowadays have certain very strict forms of Christianity that are relatively critical of any kind of culture. As I had a friend uh, when I was young and she said, I'm not allowed to go to the cinema, for instance. And conservative or very strict uh, Christians, even in the early Roman Empire, would have felt that poetry was something problematic because it was something the pagans did. It spoke about uh, lots of uh, problematic gods who did very tricky things like uh, committing adultery or producing children out of wedlock, etc., etc. So the concept of Christian, Christian poetry was therefore something that could potentially be tainted uh, other than very narrowly conceived liturgical forms one would use uh, in, a, in a Christian service. Um, and therefore even within Christianity itself poetry had quite a difficult start. It was not easy to uh, make this an acceptable uh, form but it Christians also realized that poetic authority could be used as a vehicle of uh, um, a transformation and of bringing the Christian message uh, into a wider cultural sphere. And that was something that proved to be very successful. Um, these poets became very, very influential. They were read widely um, throughout late antiquity until the Middle Ages and the Baroque. And therefore, um, this proved to be a technique that was then felt to be acceptable because one could use that poetry also to turn against the pagans and say, we, we do actually poetry like you do, but we do it ten times better because we have the true God and this poetry is then a vehicle to salvation. There is a well-known um, Latin poet from the first century BC called Lucretius, who is a poet who um, in his poetry deals with the beliefs uh, and philosophical ideas of um, a philosopher called Epicurus who uh, promoted the idea that the world consisted of atoms and the void, as it was a materialistic view of the world, and that the gods, although they existed, did not intervene. And this was of course completely at odds with the Christian view, um, but there is a, an anonymous poet of presumably the 5th century who uses echoes of Lucretius' poetry when he uh, puts the creation narrative of Genesis into verse uh, and his conclusion is that uh, the cosmos is material and atoms and the void is absolutely fine. However, there is a divine intervention, there is a God that is active in human history and there is a world uh, beyond the purely material. So you can clearly see it's a combination of uh, different positions into a harmonized new whole that allows to adopt parts of Lucretius and turning parts of him around. And then there is another uh, example that is even more uh, sophisticated that's from a poet who is arguably the most famous Latin Christian poet of late antiquity called Prudentius. He lived around 400 and the most famous of his poems is called Psychomachia, the battle of the human soul. And it's a poem that tells um, the battle of seven virtues against seven vices. They're all ladies, personifications, and it's a battle, if you like, of ethics of virtue, uh, how to be a good person and what the problems are when you have this battle in your own soul. And nobody ever before had uh, constructed a poem that consisted throughout only of 
epic agents that are personifications of abstract values. That's, that's, that's novel. And he's very successful in this, and of course Christianity is the only true way to salvation, and it all ends, uh, as it were, in, 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 in the heavenly Jerusalem. But the first line of that poem echoes a line from Virgil's Aeneid, that was of course still very, very famous. And in Virgil, um, Aeneas, in Book 6, a very famous passage, prays to Apollo, a pagan god of poetry, before he goes down into the underworld to understand more about the Roman Empire, basically. And Prudentius takes that verse and modifies it slightly, and then it turns into a prayer to Christ, of course not into Apollo, because Apollo is the wrong god, and it's a prayer that initiates then not going into the underworld, but going into your own soul, yeah? and not in order to learn more about the Roman Empire, but to learn more about your own battle for truth. And that's a very, very powerful way of, as it were, anchoring innovation in something that is established in the past. The interesting thing about authority uh, in general is that on the one hand it asserts dominance um, and also tries to push through things people find unusual, but on the other hand it also has a stabilizing factor because it can use tradition to augment and stabilize its own message. And this is precisely what uh, Christian poetry is meant to do. It's a, a realm that is familiar to people and by using this cultural space uh, to get across a new message, that message um, gets um, a, a further additional backing, as it were. And recent uh, evolutionary biology has established that uh, what puts us humans at the top of the food chain is our ability to create culture and to be able to learn culturally. And um, poetry is of course a part of culture and has several abilities uh, that are very uh, important to inform the way we think and interact with others and therefore make us successful as a species. Uh, and poetry has the ability to create identity. Think of Shakespeare as the bard. Yeah. Poetry creates a safe literary space to enable diverse thought experiments and to integrate potentially conflicting opinions and views of the world. And it also generates um, literary forms through which human behavior, thought and values are, as it were, trained, reflected. It's a space that can influence behavior in a pleasurable and entertaining way, like going to the theater or reading a nice book, etc., etc. So Christian poetry, early Christian poetry, sits at the sweet spot of all these functions of cultural products altogether and lends thereby cultural authority uh, to the Christian message. And therefore my conclusion is that instead of saying that it is uh, Christian poetry is something unoriginal and uh, decadent, it is actually a highly um, innovative uh, contribution and impressive testimony to Christians, Christianity's ability to learn culturally. And so Christian poetry had a very important function in advancing um, the Christian uh, message through the centuries.